0: How are you? Whoever just said blessed, you've been tracking with our series, Matthew chapter 5. That's the first word in our series, Matthew chapter 5. It's great that spring is here, just even for two days, and then we go back to the winter. But enjoy it. Thanks for being here with us today. We are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount called Kingdom Codes. And if you use your Three Crosses app, you can check in online and then go right to the sermon notes or read the passage with us in a moment. Speaking of reading, I was backstage a moment ago walking around and like a crazy person practicing my sermon, and my eyes fell upon this sign, and I wonder how helpful it is at a church um, like ours that says, stop, no mice beyond this point. (laughs) And I don't know if we have like a a mouse literacy program at the church (laughs) or what, but I really hope that the mice at our church are reading these signs because we're (laughs) sick of them eating our cords and things. Reminds me of a story about 15 years ago. My wife and I were in the garage at our house on Lake Chabot Road. We had a detached garage. And so the bad news with detached garages is... The mice. We should have had signs. We had poison instead. The good news was we had this space where we could work on different projects, kind of away from the house, make dust, all that kind of stuff. And so one day, our oldest was at preschool, our youngest was with us, and we were in the garage working on a chair or something, sanding it, staining it, whatever we were doing. And our baby was just kind of crawling around the garage, minded his business. You guys know where this story's going. And we should have had more signs. Uh, <laughs> And we look up from our work, and he's over in the corner, and he's eating something. Oh. It was not a mouse. Um, he was eating something, and it's like that's weird. Like we don't keep food in the garage because of mice. So like he's eating a wood chip or something, and so you know, we go over, and I almost said his name. He could do some math, but I go over to him, and uh, we like swipe whatever it is out of his mouth, and this little like tiny raisin-looking thing falls on the ground. Not a raisin. Um, Yeah, child is, you can call CPS now, Uh, it's been, I don't know what the statute of limitations are, we called poison control, our our child is eating mouse poop. Um, Mouse poop in a garage filled with mice poison, which was our bigger fear, right, because I don't know how toxic poop is, Um, poison poop feels worse, and so... Humbled ourselves, we call poison control, and um, I don't know if they made a CPS report, but they, they said, hey, it's okay, we don't recommend um, <laughs> that diet. <laughs> but our book, I assume there's a chapter in their book on poison poop, uh, their book says he's going to be fine. But I'll never forget the emotion as a parent thinking that there might be this poisonous substance like finding its way into our child's digestive system right there's this invisible toxin inside of him and what's it going to do now, i don't just tell you the story because it's a fun one uh, i tell you the story because as i read the passage that i'll read aloud for all of us in a moment this morning i found myself getting the same emotional reaction to jesus words as i did in the garage with our little baby son crawling around 15 years ago, because the way that Jesus describes these different sins that we'll cover over the next several weeks it is the same way, almost like he's trying to shake our shoulders and wake us up and say, there's something toxic inside of you that we need to figure out how to get out. So have you ever had uh, an experience where maybe you swallowed something poisonous or maybe you went to the doctor and found out that you had really high cholesterol markers or you had the beginnings the signs of heart disease or you're worried about cognitive impairment or you're thinking about cancer and are there these things inside of my body that I don't know about but can destroy me someday and the hardest thing about these invisible poisons inside of us is a lot of times we don't even notice them. Until they've grown to the size that they're affecting our life. They're they're affecting, they're threatening us in a a dire way. And I think the same thing is true of these different categories of poisonous attitudes, mindsets, sinful behavior, temptations that Jesus draws out these next several weeks. Poison, like a desire to seek retribution. Poison, like being tempted to break your word. Poison, like the temptation towards lust. Poison, like anger. These things that in in small doses, we might not even know that they're there inside of us. But the way that Jesus approaches these topics sounds like the type of alarming tone that, that Jessica and I had on the phone with poison control when we're wondering, is this poison going to destroy us? Because he comes to this crowd as he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And he talks about these things that all of us have in our hearts at some level. And he escalates them to this place that that feels like he's trying to show us how poisonous this temptation truly is. And so my invitation for all of us these next several weeks as we walk through these sections is to listen to Jesus' words and to take him seriously, And he's not escalating these things for fun. He is not the person that when you think of his teaching, he's like really hard about stuff. Normally, he's the grace and love and uh, forgiveness guy, but he's so concerned about these things. Let's listen to his words. And finally, what I want you to listen to most of all is the remedy that he gives each week. Because what I notice is that even though he's talking about these poisons that could exist inside of us, every time he talks about one, he gives us something we can do to weed the poison out and purify our hearts and cleanse ourselves of this thing that is hurting us that often we don't even know. And so today we're going to start by reading the section on anger in Matthew chapter 5, and you'll see the way he escalates it quickly because in my Bible at least, the little chapter heading that someone wrote says murder. This is Matthew 5:21 says, so you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, here comes the poison pill, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which means like stupid head or something, do it while you're still together, on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. And there's two potential pathways that we can take through this text, and we're going to take both of them in two different contexts. Uh, On the podcast, if you listen to Three Crosses podcast, or if you're willing to, Pastor and AJ and I kind of wrestle through all the legal language in this text. And what exactly is he talking about when he says you're going to be answerable to the Sanhedrin because of your anger? the other pathway that we're going to take in the sermon time this morning is looking at the text and asking, why is anger such a big deal to Jesus? Why does he equate it with Murder. Why does he say that if you don't settle matters with your adversary, you're in danger of the fire of hell? Why does he say truly, the last thing in verse 26, truly you will not get out until you've repaid the last penny? Why is anger such a big deal to Jesus? All right, if it were true that we can find ourselves in literal prison if we get angry, how many of you would be behind bars right now? I think all of us should be raising our hands. Here's the fascinating thing that I found as I studied this passage myself, and maybe this is your experience too, is that at first glance, that's my first thing. Yes, this is me. Uh, I should be in prison. If this is a crime, I'm guilty. But then for some reason, by the time I personally get to the end of the text, I kind of feel like, oh, well, he's not really talking about me after all. Yeah, I mean, I get angry sometimes, but I mean, not like go to jail angry, not fires of hell angry, just like normal Angry. And so, again, I, I want to address the question why is anger to Jesus <clears throat> such a big deal? And if you're taking notes today, we've got four different reasons that we find through the study, through the text, through kind of wrestling with this, um, through the whole of Scripture. And so, here is reason number one. Number one, the reason that anger is a big deal is because our anger is often invisible. Our anger is often invisible. You know, as I did the reflection of my own life, I think the angriest that I ever get at a consistent level is when I'm watching sports. <laughs> Not because I feel angry when I'm watching sports. I have a great time when I'm watching sports. But because I feel like if you had a transcript of the words that came out of my mouth while I'm watching sports, <laughs> you'd probably think this guy has anger issues. Because right, I say things to athletes on a TV screen, or even we were at the Warriors game Thursday night, I'm screaming things that they pro- hopefully can't hear at them. <laughs> that isn't like rage, but it's rude, right? I'm like saying like, pass the ball, pass the ball, pass the ball. What's wrong with you? Can't you see that? Come on, come on, come on, come on, come right? on. And this, there's this like tension in my heart. It's overcoming my mouth. And I'm like, these guys are terrible. You're so dumb, right? <laughs> and if you're a sports person, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's sports. But if you weren't a sports person, you might say, Danny, why do you come and pay money to watch this? Obviously, it makes you so angry. (laughs) And I would honestly say, I'm not angry. This was fantastic. Like, this was like the best night of my life. This was so fun. But the funny thing is, right, if you were a doctor and had a way to like look at my heart and blood pressure, I'm sure you'd say, no, this guy's lying. He's angry, right? Because afterwards, like, I'm all tense, right? I'm coming down from this adrenaline. Like, I just screamed at someone because I did. And even though that is anger, it's a different kind of anger. And it doesn't come out of my mouth when I'm watching nine-year-olds play soccer, but it's in my heart when I watch nine-year-olds play soccer. (laughs) Even in the moment when it's happening, my anger is often invisible. And I wonder, for many of us who may struggle with anger, I wonder how many of us struggle with anger and we don't even know that we struggle with anger. I think of the, the performers out there. Maybe you're the athlete or you're the performer at work or you're the performer in your role at home or wherever you go at your school. And you're angry at yourself all the time, right? You're the one who's got the internal monologue while you're running on the basketball court. Come on, stupid, get better, get better, do better, make that shot, what's wrong with you? Right, and maybe these are words from someone who used to say that to you. Maybe these are just words you've created for yourself and you're angry at yourself and your anger is designed to make you perform better. It's invisible, but it's anger, Right, maybe you're a perfectionist. I would have you raise your hands, and you might be tempted to do because you want to do it right. Um, perfectionists are driven by anger, right? Anger itself, right? Do better, do right, get better. This isn't good enough. Well, a lot of times, an- perfectionists get angry at other people, too, right? For, for grievous sins like cutting the vegetables incorrectly or loading the dishwasher wrong, right? Because there's a way things are supposed to happen, and when someone does something that doesn't go the way you want them to do it, you get so... Angry. But that anger in those moments is often invisible. You don't know you're angry, you just think they're stupid, right? <laughs> Raka, you fool. It's funny, Jesus uses these really mundane words, right? He doesn't like cuss somebody out in Matthew chapter 5. He, he's saying that even those little, you know, you stupid head, what's wrong with you? is indicating that there's this disease called anger in your heart, and it's just overflowing out of your mouth. Performers, perfectionists. We get mad when someone cuts us off in traffic. We get mad when the grade doesn't come the way we want it to be. We get mad when we get overlooked for a promotion. We get mad when our coworker shows up late, or when someone in another department leaves early for some reason. We're still mad. And so often, our, our anger is invisible. If someone says, hey, are you feeling angry right now? You're like, no, 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 no. I mean, I'm, I'm a little irritated maybe, a little frustrated, just feeling a little tired. We're terrified to say we're angry or we're not realizing that we are because our anger is often invisible. The second reason that anger is dangerous is that we have a tendency to justify our own anger, justify our own anger. And, and not merely justify it. maybe you're initially thinking like, oh, well, it's, it's okay that I'm angry cuz someone did something wrong against me. Justifying the sense that like our behavior that comes out when we are angry, we justify it by using our anger. And so maybe you do have a hard day at work or you get in trouble at school or whatever it is and and you come home and you're short, you're tired, you're irritated, you're angry and you snap at your sibling or you snap at your kids. And then you feel bad. And you go back to your kids, you say, I'm sorry. Or your spouse, I'm sorry I snapped at you. I just had a really hard day at work. And we use our anger to justify our sinful behavior. Like it makes it better. All right, next week, we're going to talk about lust. Can you imagine if we did this with lust? That you go to your wife and say, hey, I'm so sorry that I kissed the waitress at the restaurant tonight. It's just, <laughs> she was very beautiful. And then you just drop it and walk away. Right? It's the same exact thing, right? You, you were tempted in one area, and then you acted out, and then you justified it by saying, well, it's okay, because I was lusting after her. Like, that would not, that's a, a marriage-limiting move if you do that with lust. But for some reason, when we do that with anger, we feel like that that's like the, the ticket out of here, right? Well, hey, I'm sorry I yelled at you, but I was angry. Jesus says, this is why anger is dangerous because we're tempted to justify even our behavior when we are angry or our anger itself you know one of my favorite verses in the bible for some reason probably because i'm have this sadistic humor or something is jonah chapter 4 when god goes to jonah and jonah is angry he's angry for no good reason he's angry because god forgave the ninevites that jonah wanted to see condemned and destroyed and judged and god spares them from their calamity because they repent and jonah's so mad And God approaches Jonah, and he says, Jonah, is it it good that you're angry? And Jonah says, and I quote, it is, I am angry enough to die. I don't know why that's my favorite verse, but it it is, (laughs) I'm angry enough to die. Jonah says, no, it's good to be angry because I'm angry. And he uses his anger to justify his anger. It's... There's something in us that when we're angry, we feel like we're justified in doing whatever comes out of us. It's a dangerous thing. And the third reason that, that anger is dangerous in the scriptures is that anger puts us in the place of God. I really, really think what anger is. It's, you've designed a world that, that has certain things that people are supposed to do in that world. And when people don't act the way that you want them to act in the world that you create in your mind, you get angry And when you're angry, you feel like they deserve judgment, and and then you decide that you want to bring forth judgment on that person. And so when you call them a fool or when you yell at them or when you, you know, snuff them out of your life or whatever it is, what you're doing is you're trying to be the God of your own world, and anger puts you in the place of God. And let me tell you, you're not as good a God as God is. Because our God gets angry, our God brings judgment, And yet our God delights in forgiving. Our God delights in reconciliation. Our God delights in mercy giving. And we do not. We're more of the Jonah who are angry enough to die. And if we were the God of our own world, fire and brimstone would be hailing from the heavens all the time. And then the freeways would be clear and we could just thrive (laughs) without traffic. I walk through all of this just to kind of escalate for us The fact that anger is a dangerous thing and that this is something that none of us are immune to. And so part of my challenge for all of us this week is that we might be people who start to just see it. See it when we're watching the basketball game and our hearts are starting to tighten around us. See us when we're yelling at seven-year-olds who are playing soccer for the first time ever, right? See it when you're screaming at someone who can't hear you in the car in front of you. See it when you come home and snap at your kids and think, ah, it's okay, I was angry at work. See it! Because it's often invisible. It's often justifiable to us. But when we put ourselves in the place of God and start meeting out judgment because we are angry, it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. I think Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul talks about anger, it kind of brings up this idea that sometimes we can't help but be angry, right? If, If anger is a temptation... We can't sometimes help it coming up um, in us, but then what do we do when it happens? And I'm turning my page to Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this, in your anger, do not sin. This is verse 26. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. At right? some, some level, we can't help but be angry. But what differentiates the righteous person from the person who's driven by their emotions is the righteous person says, okay, I, I, I'm going to take control of my behavior when I'm angry, and I'm not going to act this way. Be angry, but don't sin. And Because we get all think of times in the Bible where Jesus gets angry and then turns the tables over in the temple, right? There, there are times where Jesus gets angry, righteous anger, but I would guess that most of the time we act out in anger. It's not righteous anger. <laughs> It's you broke the laws of my world. Anger. It's I'm God. Anger. It's I'm gonna put you in your place. Anger. It's overflowing from my heart. Anger. Be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. We gotta start seeing it. I think part of the way that the reason that Jesus elevated it so quickly is because He wants us to see it, see it, because it's invisible. The last scary detrimental anger issue that I want to draw, out, because this is where Jesus goes with the passage, is that one of the the late effects of anger is that anger destroys our relationships with those we love most. Anger disintegrates our relationships with those we love most. And again, since anger is invisible, often we don't even see it. I was uh, at a memorial service uh, for a great Christian guy, and you know, person after person came up on the stage and extolled his character and his service in the church and in the workplace and his compassion and graciousness and all these things, right? And so you're sitting out there you're thinking, that like, this is an amazing guy. I wish I would have known him better, or hey, you know, I, I heard some of these stories. I didn't know all these stories, right? And Your heart is filled about this this guy and his character in his life, and, then, and I was part of the service, and, and so I had some access to the family, and, and, and after the service, I I got a chance to talk to the kids. And it was interesting, because mo- most of the kids were like, man, that was an amazing service. I'm so glad that, that our dad was honored in this way. And, but then I got to one of the kids, and I said, hey, how was the service for you? And, and he said, it was really hard for me. And I said, well, hey, I understand your dad passed away. And he's like, no, it was hard for me, because this person that these people were describing is not the person that I lived with when I was in his house. Well, it's interesting, right? Because they all lived in the same house at the same time. And, and this guy didn't even bring up. There was no abuse. There was no verbal abuse. There was no, nothing right, terrible. But as I dove a little bit deeper in the, the brief conversation we had about it, what, what he indicated was that there were some seasons in his life where he did stupid things as a child. And, and he will never forget right? either the look of judgment or the anger or the, the phrase or whatever it is that his dad just dumped in his lap kind of out of the overflow of the frustration or whatever it was because his son just did this or that or this or that. And what I realized in that moment is these kids had very different experiences of their father because one kid made his dad angry more. And the anger, even though the, the dad was pretty good at holding it back most of the time, this anger and how it did come out disintegrated a relationship with the person he loved the most. It was really scary to read this passage and think, well, what would happen if I went to my kids and asked do I ever come across as angry to you? Because I would guess a lot of times where our anger comes out the most is on those who we love most, on our children. We're most comfortable. We're not going to yell at our boss. We yell at our kids. Our hearts are, are more intertwined with our children, and so when they don't perform, we feel like we're embarrassed or ashamed. We want them to have a better life than we have, so when they go down the wrong path, we come after them. And I can't tell you how many people I've talked to in, in pastoral counseling who have difficult relationships with their parents as adults because of the way their parents' anger came out when they were children. Right? And not just yelling, not lectures, everything, right? Perfectionism. I can never be good enough for my mom. Every time I brought something home, she asked, why not an A plus? You could have done better here. Why don't you do another draft? And, and eventually it just got so overwhelming, I just didn't want to bring anything to her anymore because she hates everything that I do. The mom wouldn't say she's angry. The mom would just say, no, I just, I just want her to be excellent. So my dad was always pushing me to perform. Every time I'd come off the field, all I wanted to hear was, great job today, but he always had seven tips of how to get better. And it felt like, man, I will never be good enough. Right? Or, yeah, my dad was yelling all the time. My mom was yelling all the time. You didn't understand what happened behind closed doors, right? Some extreme stuff, too. But, but regardless of the manifestation, small, medium, or large... The the thing that Jesus lands on in Matthew 5 about the destructive power of anger is that anger disintegrates the relationships with those who we love most. I can think of, I mean, even here at church, right? We come, we worship God, we receive communion, and and, and there are moments where we're sitting here, even a message like this, and we're having these like flashbacks. Right, to times that our anger got the best of us, and we said something that we wish we could take back to our kids, or to our friends, or to our spouse, or to our parents, or to our coworker. And if you're like me, when those flashbacks come, I kind of just want to put them under the, you know, sweep them under the rug a little bit. But I'm standing here before the Lord, and, and so generally my practice is that I come to God with that flashback, and I say, God, I'm sorry. <sighs> Help me not to do this anymore. And then, like, additional prayer is like, and help them to have amnesia and forget that that ever happened. <laughs> because the last thing I want is for this relationship to be disintegrated because of something stupid that I said. It wasn't them, it was me. And, and on one hand, that's an admirable way to deal with anger, fess up, come before the Lord in a moment of worship. And yet this is precisely what Jesus is addressing in Matthew 5. He says that when you want to do just that, what I just said, it's not enough. It's not enough to heal the destructive power of anger. This is what Jesus literally says. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember, the flashback, there remember your brother or sister has something against you. This is the part we don't like. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your your gift. Instead of merely coming to God and saying, I'm sorry, forgive me, help them forget, Jesus says, push pause on your conversation with God, go make it right with them, and then go and resume worship services later. I could give you a break to get up and go real quick. And I don't like that this is in the Bible because nothing feels more cringy to me than having to call someone and say, hey, remember the other day when I said this to you? I'm really sorry. I was angry, and that's not an excuse because my behavior was inappropriate. Would you forgive me? I hate doing that. But for some reason, Jesus says, If you're sick and there's this anger cancer inside of you, here's your prescription, go fix it, and then come back. If you're taking notes, you can write this down, that Jesus claims that we can reverse the damaging effects of our anger by prioritizing reconciliation with those who have been hurt by us. Part of the reasons I want you to have the app because that's a real long sentence if you had to write it from scratch. <laughs> Prioritizing reconciliation with those who are hurt by us. This is one of the things we discuss on the, on the podcast is that the passage kind of takes a turn at this moment where uh, Jesus says when you're at the altar and realize someone has something against you, right? It's not you realize you have something against someone. It's almost because when you're at the altar, you can drop everything you have against people, but you can't fix what you did the other day, and now that person's mad at you. So, so he says, if you want to fix it, you got to fix it, and then you can fix it. All right, so the prescription that he gives, not just for our behavior, but to change our hearts, is this practice of reconciliation. And so the few minutes we have left, I want to talk a little bit about why this is good news, and why this works, and why this is beautiful. First, this is the good news part, is that the gospel makes reconciliation possible. The gospel makes reconciliation possible. By gospel, I mean the good news that Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins, rose to give forgiveness and new life to all who believe. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, makes reconciliation possible. We are forgiven unlimitedly so we can go around dispensing unlimited forgiveness. Paul calls us in Corinthians, ministers of what? Reconciliation, because the gospel makes reconciliation possible. The second thing that's good news about this passage is that reconciliation should flow like water in the Christian, in the church community. I was talking to somebody the other day who has anger issues. A young lady, and she said, you know what? It's just so hard for me because I'm always always angry. I'm always yelling. I'm always yelling at my friends. And... I'm always yelling at my parents, and I said, well, let me tell you some good news. I said, you've got good parents, you've got good friends, you've got a good community, and in the community, the Christian community that you're a part of, you will always be forgiven when you go to someone and say, I'm so sorry I yelled at you, will you forgive me, right? Because reconciliation can flow like water in the church community. It's interesting, Jesus says, when you realize a brother or sister has something against you, right? There's a, a little bit of this, let's keep short accounts with those who are part of the church, because we are folks that when we mess up, and we all mess up, forgiveness is a currency that we operate in. And so go get it from the person that you need it from. And forgiveness, reconciliation, should flow like water in the church community. And finally, and this is why I think Jesus prescribes the reconciliation specifically is that practicing reconciliation can actually heal us of our anger. Here's a bold claim. Practicing reconciliation can heal us of our anger. I think this is why Jesus prescribes this behavior to those who struggle with anger. I was talking to somebody else the other day who we're talking about anger issues, and and, and this was a different person who's a male, a guy, and he said, you know, it's It's hard for me because I just, I get so angry all the time and I don't feel like I have self-control and just fly off the handle and and I don't know how to fix it. And I said, well, why don't you go to the person that you got mad at and fix it? He's like, yeah, but how's that gonna fix my heart, right? And this is before I studied this, so I'm just like shooting in the dark. Uh, So I just said, hey, man, this is just a guess, but I would guess that if you humbled yourself, went to the person you wronged, asked them for forgiveness, and then received that forgiveness, that would be a difficult, awkward, beautiful conversation that might actually give you the self-control to not do that again next time. Either because Jesus heals you through that practice, or for the simple reason that it's so humiliating to do that, that your body starts getting wired to be like, don't say that or else God's going to make me have to get forgiveness from that person later. Jesus doesn't tell us why, but Jesus moves from escalating anger to murderous levels to saying, so what you need to do about it is anytime you realize your anger has gotten the best of you and someone is mad at you, you've got to go make it right. right. So what do we do with this this week? You know, I already mentioned number one, let's become aware of our anger. And number two, there might be some conversations you need to have this week. I would encourage you when you have that conversation, don't use your anger as a, an excuse, but go seek forgiveness for maybe your anger and your behavior. Start practicing this reconciliation and realize like Jesus teaches in this passage that even though anger is not at the same level as literally murdering someone, Jesus describes them as two stages of the same disease. So if murder is stage four cancer, anger is stage one if you've ever been diagnosed with stage one cancer, you know that your first thought is, I have to get this out of my body. And so get anger out of your body this week. Start by noticing it in your body. Move into what Jesus has prescribed. Come to him and keep short accounts with those around you so that we can be a community and your home can be a community where reconciliation and closeness and forgiveness and mercy reigns, not where anger And rage and backbiting and gossip and slander destroys. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in song. Jesus, I think of that Jonah passage I'm angry enough to die. And I do think that anger is one of those emotions. We see a few in the scriptures that are so intertwined with us as people that we feel like, if I can't have this anger, why am I even alive? We pray that you would remove our anger from us, remove our hearts of corruption from us, and replace them with soft hearts, hearts of flesh, hearts of forgiveness, hearts that ache towards Reconciliation. I pray for conversations that need to happen this week. I pray for conversations that go sideways this week when people seek forgiveness and don't receive it, that even in that moment, you would use that to heal them and somehow even bring a st- step of healing into a relationship that is broken. I pray that you would prevent us from these words coming out of our mouths, but also let us remember that out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. So let us be a church that is more concerned with healing the hearts than addressing the behaviors. And as we have our hearts transformed by you, we pray that as we look like you, we would represent you in this world, not as our own gods of this world, but as you, the God of this world. And let us be a community and let us be people where grace and mercy and love flow from every pore of our beings. And let us look like Jesus and bring the world closer to him. We pray, and pray in Jesus' name, amen.